This is Burton Chawla, and you're listening to the Black Box Podcast. And so the challenge became, how do we promote a record when all of our normal channels for promotion are no longer options? Welcome to the Black Box Podcast. I am your host, Burton Chawla. This is a conversation with industry experts in the sports, entertainment, media, and music worlds. We don't get a lot of music executives. Can I call you an executive? On this pod very much, but we are lucky enough to have Erica Ramon, Vice President of DOS Communications, also my good friend of eight plus years. Accurate. But I, but I didn't know her middle name until today. <laughs> Um, which tells you a lot about me being a bad friend. Erica, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. What does DOS Communications do? I know you're in the music business. I know you work with artists, but oftentimes I don't get much further than that with the conversations. Usually we're talking about more social things. But sure. what, what do you do? So DOS Communications is a company that was started by David Sonnenberg many, 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 many moons ago. And our primary focus is management of musical talent. Um, and the majority of our roster are multi-talented and multifaceted. So while music might be their primary goal or the thing that keeps them the most occupied, they're also writers, producers, directors, actors. And you represent them in those other fields as well? We or is represent it, them. Sometimes you don't represent them in acting, but you represent them in music. We represent in all aspects. Will you sign an artist that does other things but says, no, my acting is represented by William Morris? Like... Is that a good client for you guys? It's case by case, but William Morris actually does something different than us. So we are management and they're an agent. But it's not uncommon for you know, artists to have managers for their acting careers and managers for their music careers. So, so make that distinction for me, the difference between a manager and an agent. And then explain to me that dynamic of working with the agent because you're the manager. Right? Sure. So most simply put, in our world, being the music world, an agent books live concerts. Okay. Many of the larger agencies like William Morris that you brought up earlier handle other things from branding and, and sponsorship areas, but their primary focus is booking live shows. Okay. Um, managers do not do that. We do everything else. So define everything else for me. Everything else is bringing opportunities to the table for appearances. Obviously, strategy for live touring comes from communication and conversation between manager and agent. And of course, artist needs to be a part of those conversations as well. But no one day in my life is the same. So to break it down into very simple terms, um, we bring opportunities to the table, we lend our guidance and opinions, and help steer our clients to a direction that will ultimately have them seeing out their goal and making their dreams reality. And they pay you a management fee and then a commission? Or like, how does the, you don't have to get into the specifics of your agency or a specific client of yours, but help me understand the economics of that. Because from my seat over here, literally and figuratively, NBA players sometimes, you know, I work mostly with athletes. Athletes sometimes have this, but oftentimes it's not like a professional management agency like yours is, right? It's like their homeboy or their brother or their best friend, right? Or somebody they meet because they're so young, they're impressionable and they're like, this guy can be my manager. But that manager is often, and I'm not discounting any manager in the sports industry, is often like not necessary. The agent is really doing the heavy lifting, whether it's getting the sponsorship deals, whether it's getting a guy traded, whether it's like when it's free agency. So like to me, 
my experience has always been there's a lot of duplication here, right? So like if I'm an artist and I'm paying you a management fee and then I'm paying an agent fee and then I'm paying commission, am I paying too much for duplication here? Like how does that sort of work itself out? I know that was a long-winded way, but you've had enough dinners with me to know that like I'm going to talk for seven minutes before I ask a question. So Sure. No, I appreciate the long-winded question. Um, so that is, I think, one of the major distinctions between how an agent works in a sports, in an athlete's life and how it works in a musician's life. We do take a commission that it's one fee. There's not a management fee plus a commission. The commission is our fee. It is generally considerably higher than the other team members on the team that take a commission, which would be your agent, your attorney, and your business manager. Those Maybe are usually- Maybe a publicist, right? Publicists, the way I work is typically on a monthly retainer. Okay. And sometimes they're not even long-term. They're right. for a, they're project-based sure. or- Album release, Monthly, whatever. correct. Right. Or, you know, tour, tour related, sure. Right. But yeah, so we take a fee off the top. And like I said in our opening, the agent really just routes the tours- builds those deals, does the best deals possible for our clients, makes recommendations and suggestions about packaging ideas. And sure, if they want to bring in sponsorship to help, they absolutely can. But that's typically a separate team within the agency that will take a commission based on a deal that they bring in. Would you ever want to go to that side of it? Would you ever want to be like, I'll go to the agent side? Have, I'm. You've never said this to me before, but I'm going to speculate. They've approached you, right? Like, if you're working closely with an agent or agency and they're like, oh, this girl's dope, right? Like, that's actually the best way to get a job for all you kids out there. But have you ever thought about that side of it? Or, like, is that side – I mean, again, I'm feeling there's a lot of duplication. So, like, is that side not appealing to you or is it – it's not that it's not appealing to me, but the way that I personally found management was because of the multifaceted aspect of it. I handle everything. So my lane is wide or multiple lanes, whereas the the agent is really just focusing on the live business. But does that give you time to be social? Like how many artists are you managing right now? I've got about four artists that I'm focused on at the moment. One is very active. Right. The others are some spectrum of, of activity, but mostly dormant at the moment, largely because of COVID and largely because pre-COVID, many of them were getting ready to go back into the studio to work on music. So they've been home-based. COVID was, I, I didn't want to talk about COVID, but that's actually a good We point. don't have to talk about it. I know, I know. We're all sick of talking <laughs> about it, but I guess I'll ask you one question about it. You know, the world stopped, right? And then live events especially stopped. And then, you know, state by state, and, you know, country by country, because obviously, you know, your artists are global artists. They all have different rules and they still have different rules. They right? do. So how, like give me without like going to the deep dive, because I think we're all sick of it. But give me like the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges you had with not having live audiences or having rules and mandates. And, and maybe give me like and this is like a f interview question at a job. Give me how you got around it. Right. Like. Sure. I think the biggest challenge at the very start was that we needed to pivot quickly, which the music industry has done time and time again. Um, so the first couple of weeks, I literally spent just moving shows. Um, and that was a conversation between me and the agent. So right. on March 16th of 2020, I called my agent and said, you know, all those shows that we have starting May 5th, let's move to September. And 
hope that by then we have more clarity. Right. But let's do it now because every other person that's ready to go in April, May, June, July is also going to want to push to September, October, November. Right, so let's right. get on it. That was the first thing. And so that was a challenge, I guess, kind of averted to begin with. So then the real challenge became specifically to one of my clients, The Pretty Reckless, who had an album. I love them, by the way. I, I know you them. do. You I put know. me well, onto them. I love we're them. playing two shows in Brooklyn in March. You'll come, yep. obviously. Hopefully you won't break your foot this time because I think that prevented you from seeing them the last time. I almost broke my thumb last night. <laughs> Look at this. Well, you can get into a show with a broken thumb. Right. As long as you don't have a broken respiratory system, we'll let you in. Right. So we were we were ready to go. We were launching an album with a new single. We were launching a tour. We were launching a new image for a band that literally hadn't played a show since December 2017. So it already felt like they were, you know, in the canon and ready to explode. And then everything got put on hold. And so the challenge became, how do we promote a record when all of our normal channels for promotion are no longer options? We're not physically going in to shake hands with people at Billboard magazine. We're not going to play showcases for music supervisors in Los Angeles. We're not going to Germany and London and Paris to do warm-up shows for the shows that we're going to do later and get crowds excited. We're not doing in-store signings. None of that. And we're not playing live shows. So we sat for a moment, we thought about what we could do, and then we started up very simply and we started doing things literally from home. So we learned quickly, to the credit of our of the band, how to record themselves on iPhones with limited equipment that was available to them in their home. How's the audio sound? It sounded great, but they didn't have home studios set up and right. trying to get equipment on Amazon or wherever at that time was yep. impossible. So we put together what we could, and they learned how to record themselves, audio and video, edit it together to make it look like something cool and never been done by us before. And then we started releasing content that way. It's amazing what you, what your client can do when you say- Under I pressure. Right. I can't do this for you. I, don't, I can't hold your hand here. It's amazing what they can do. Right? But isn't that like life, right? Yeah. We, yeah. we all- 100, 100. A lot yeah. of us work better under deadlines, yep. you know, or and under a lot of pressure. Us, you know, it's as simple as like, ah, I'm not ready to leap, but if I have to leap, it's like jumping out of airplane, right? Like once you're at the edge of that seat, you got kind of got to go now, right? Um, I'm telling that story for the audience because Eric and I once jumped out of an airplane <laughs> to celebrate her 30th birthday. Yes, we um, did. Not to date you. Uh, okay, so how did- We haven't said how long ago that was, so it's okay. 75 years ago. Um, <laughs> you look how, pretty good. I look amazing for 102. Um, how'd you get into the business? Yeah, so when I was like 13, I went to my parents and told them that I wanted to work in music. Oh, and at, at that time, I wanted to work for a major label as an A&R person. I had followed, I was obviously a fan of bands and musicians, and it was sort of early 90s alternative that initially- hooked me. Um, what, what bands? Early 90s alternative. Me too. I know. We've talked about this yeah. as well. You know, the Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, right, right, Foo right. Fight, the grunge movement essentially right. of the 90s. But R.E.M. was kind of a, a turning point for me. Okay. Um, and the song Losing My Religion specifically spoke to me, um, even as a young kid. And I decided- We I don't have licensing rights. I'd love to play it right now, but I can't. Okay. I can't afford it. That's, everybody else should go out and listen to it. Because if right. you've never heard this song, because maybe you're- you were born after that song came out and you're, <laughs> you're listening born in to this. 2000? Yeah. 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 I mean, I meet a lot of people born of after 2000 yeah. these days. But anyways, that song spoke to me and I decided at that time that I needed to work with those people. Those people being the ones that were creating this amazing music and lyrics that spoke to me in a way that nothing else really did. So you're 13, you tell your parents what are the next steps now? The next steps are 
they obviously were very supportive and still are, but they had one rule, like you still have to go to college, which I agreed with. I mean, I still wanted to go to college and I studied economics and right. had little to nothing to do with what I do now. Um, but what'd you do in college to sort of set you up to get a job? Because what I did was, and I had a more difficult conversation. I had the conversation when I was 17 and it was more difficult, mainly because my parents really only understand, you know, Immigrants, Indians, they understand doctor, lawyer, engineer. Similar for Jewish parents. Right. And, you know, they couldn't understand. They're like, you can get into any school you want. Why wouldn't you want to go to med school? But what I did was, you know, chip on my shoulder and wanted to prove them wrong. I just got jobs while I was in college, right? Like I was 19 working at a basketball magazine selling $5,000 page ads, right? Like while I went to NYU, like it actually helped me get through college, you know, financially. So, that's what I did to set myself up because now I'm like a little, I'm in the door already, right? Like I'm pitching brands all day long at 19. So by the time I'm 22, I have really good relationships. So, and then one job leads to another and relationships lead to another, et cetera, et cetera. So how'd you, like, what was your first entry? And then what was the big breakthrough entry? My experience was similar in that I started, I worked for the entertainment council on campus at my college. I went okay. to University of California, Davis, and like we were responsible for bringing talent to oh, okay. campus. That's great. Uh, we had a beautiful theater called Freeborn Hall that like artists actually wanted to play. Right. Um, but that was kind of short lived because I was a freshman. And as a freshman, you know, there's a hierarchy in college. It doesn't matter what right. you're trying to do. And so my opinions were rarely sort of listened to. And I felt like my efforts would be better focused elsewhere. So okay. I started interning every summer when I was back in Los Angeles. Okay. So my first job, I, I actually did get paid for this, but was very similar in that I was selling things for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. It was okay. about their their like their philanthropic arm. Okay. Um, and so through that, I literally was going to shows at the Hollywood Bowl every single night because our team and got you're like tickets. Twenty years old. I'm 19 at the okay. time. Yeah, and had a great experience. I met wonderful people and grew up at the Hollywood Bowl, so it was very nostalgic to then be like kind of working behind the scenes of one of the greatest symphonies in sure. the world. And then I went back to college and then I came back and I interned for Interscope Records and I was in the publicity department, which was not necessarily where I wanted to be, sure. but the label was hot at that time. It was The Game, it was Eminem, yep. it was 50 Cent. And we were Interscope doing- Interscope was fire back then. It was fire. I mean, they're still fire. They always have been. Yep, yep. They sort of reinvent themselves by genre every so often. Yep. But it was exciting because hip hop wasn't necessarily where I came from, but I did love it. And I was working like anger management tour stuff and putting out press releases and learning what a label functioned like, which is where I thought I was going to work when right. I was 13 and told my parents about my dream. So, right. you know, fast forward six, seven years later, I'm now like in the inner workings and seeing how the departments work together. Right. Then I went back for my you know final year of school came home, didn't necessarily want to go back to Interscope or the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So instead, I made a list of 10 places that I wanted to work. And I knew zero people in the industry. Um, it is an Even industry- Even at Interscope, like you didn't meet people? Like... Oh, I did. I totally did. And they were great. And I kept in touch with many of them. And there was one woman in, in particular that sort of told me, like, the door is always open if you wanted to come right. back. But I didn't want to be in publicity. And so right. I felt like if I started at a label in publicity, I'd probably stay there. Right. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. And in that time, I had also been working with uh, the Peapod Foundation and sort of their philanthropic arms. So I started meeting a lot of people in the business on the management side, on the agent side, but just in passing. And so I made a list. And like I said, I knew nobody. There was no familial entry for me. And I just started sending my resume to what felt like 
a black hole. Yeah. And out of the 10 places that I reached out to is like my first round, I got callbacks from two. Uh, one was BMI, which represents songwriters and music publishers. They're what's called a PRO, a performing rights organization. And the other is Grammy, um, which everybody's familiar with. And I thought, wow, these are great. And I went and I met with both people individually. And I really connected with the women that ran the department that I would end up working for at BMI. Okay. They were rocker chicks. And <laughs> one was a former manager. One was a former agent. They had that sort of background that I did, but it was in the film and TV department. Okay. So I thought, I'm going to start here. I like these women. I can learn from them, and I'll get some knowledge in a world that I don't know much about, which at the time was really starting to bubble under, which was synchronization. And at that time, it was like, oh, sync is the new radio. It was when songs were being put in the OC and artists were being discovered. Okay. What's OC? It was a television show on- okay. Oh, uh, yeah. oh, okay. But what is sync? sync say that word. Synchronization. What does that mean? It's the process of putting basically music to an image. Okay. So anytime you watch a television show and it, you hear a song in the background, there was a license done for right. that. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. You said philanthropic 17 times in three sentences. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe twice. I know you do some philanthropic work. Tell me about Grammy U. How'd you get involved? What is it? Let's start with that. What is it? Sure. So Grammy U is the Grammys uh, mentorship program for college age students that want to work in the music business. And like I said earlier, I didn't have anybody that I could rely on to kind of get my foot right. in the door. So it was important to me as I started to grow in my career to give back in that way yep. and be a beacon of information for kids and answer their questions, help them out, review resumes, talk to them about my own experiences, speak to their classes, read their course notes, whatever. So, And some of these kids you don't meet, right? Like they're in college all over the country, maybe the world. And like, what do they do? Just email you and you go back and forth and build a relationship that way, mentor, mentee that way? So through Grammy specifically, it was the New York chapter. So okay. I did have the opportunity to meet those kids. And cool. obviously it's been, the in-person has been on hold in COVID. But the last two women that I mentored just prior to shutdown still keep in touch with me and let me know what they're doing. I have I, <laughs> I have a lot of mentees out there in the sports or marketing or advertising worlds, right? Like younger people that like I really liked and you know I took them I go out of my way to take them under my wing and the challenge I always have is probably my personality. Like I'm a difficult human, right? I'm a, I'm a grumpy, <laughs> difficult, sometimes unorganized, but then precise about certain things, right? I'll be unorganized about A, B, and C, but if D doesn't look exactly the way I want it to, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. So I struggle with that. But the biggest thing I tell young people that I am mentoring or, you know, trying to help them out, I, I don't even know if they view me all the time as a mentor, is there's like two things I really care about and that I think should be applied to any job or profession that you have. One is passion. Like actually give a fuck about what you're 100%. doing. A hundred percent. Right? Like sometimes selling this program sucks, but it's not the program you need to have passion about. It's your career and the process that you're in. So passion is always a key thing. And then the other one is, and it's tied to giving a fuck. It's like, be curious. Like, you know, don't accept an answer that doesn't make sense to you. Don't not think about things, right? Like nowadays I use words like be thoughtful, right? Like I'm a little more soft in my delivery, but what are some of the things that 
like core beliefs that you have that you're like, hey, person X, let me give you some advice about this. Not so much as like change the font on your resume, but like, you know, your approach. It's funny that you mentioned those two things. And this is gives me more insight into why we do get along so well. But passion is by far number one. And my own ideals for how I approach my career and moving through it and my future life is like, if I ever lose passion, then it's time for me to move on. So that's important to me. And when I talk to young people, it's the same thing. Because whether you're a manager or an agent or an artist or in sports, you're essentially selling something, right? So I am a terrible liar. So I can't sell something that I don't believe in. I'm a great liar. (laughs) It's like one of my best skills is to lie. But I can sell the shit out of something that I believe in. And so if I run my life and run my career through passion, then I'm always going to be able to relay that message. Right. The other thing is- And are you telling my tease this? absolutely. I'm very straight because again, the people that I looked up to that I built connections with on my own were the same. Right. So it's passion, curiosity. My thing is, I don't really want to hear I don't know as an answer to any question. However, I don't know, but I'm going to go find out. Right. Is Great acceptable. Answer. Right. Great answer. And that goes to your curiosity because, or it goes, we say this a lot in the music business, like fake it till you make it, right? Like always wanting to be learning more and delivering and exceeding expectations. Right. So go figure it out. And if right. you need help to do so, ask for it. Right. I feel like I don't want to be the old man, get off my lawn. I am that person. Um, <laughs> You're a curmudgeon. You know, <laughs> without getting diverted off a business industry conversation, you're probably the third person in the last six months that used that word to describe me. And I had to like Google it. I was like, what does this mean? Like I'm a troll living in a hole? What does this actually mean? (laughs) And it is an accurate way to describe me. So as being a curmudgeon, like I've struggled with the mentees because I'm the same as you. I want to pay it forward, right? Like I know that's a cliche thing to say. To be honest, like I have people that paid it forward. You know, I I went into sports not knowing anybody either. I have one other piece of advice that I want to give you that I give. But do you want to finish your thought on curmudgeon? No, no, go. So another thing that I learned very early on is that the busiest people that I've ever met respond to every email. And so- The busiest people you've ever met respond to every email? There's a, ca- a slight caveat, but okay. like some of the busiest people and most important people take the time to respond. And so my thing was- Interesting. So that's advice you give. That's advice respond. I give. Respond. Even if the respond is okay. Or if the response is back to you ASAP. Like acknowledgement and response I think is important. It's a respect. Wow. It's okay. like human nature level 101. And it's okay, again, not to have the answer right away, but- too many people say I didn't get your email, and I'm sorry, but that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's either bullshit or like, you know, it's like me. I'm disorganized. Like, my emails pile up, and then I got your email. It got delivered. I just didn't <laughs> open it. And now I have 95 unopened emails from 9 a.m., and I don't know which one's yours. Like, you know, that happens to me. That's actually – that's good advice. And if we were having dinner and wine and not, you know – in a studio, I'm sure we could talk about this for an hour, but like, so I, I think it's good advice. I would say a couple of things. One, only if it's addressed to you, I think. Like, I hate the the, the mass emails where, where people who are not even like, there's no action item. I agree with that 100%. Like chiming in, right? You don't have to write thanks to 20 people. Right. And then 
I think the respect thing is a really good one because you're right. Because I've actually been on the other side of that and lost my mind on the person. Like, yo, you're texting me back, but I asked you a direct question and you're not answering it with four people on it. So, and you're right about respect. And I, and I need to be better about that. Like, I don't mean anything disrespectful to people, but sometimes I come off that way and impact over intent. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I, I am a curmudgeon. So where I was going with that part of the conversation is, and this is just me to vent a little frustration. It's like, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm being that old man, get off my lawn. But like, sometimes I'm like, was I like this when I was 19? Like the, the frustration I have sometimes with, what are they? Gen Z's? I don't, I don't even know what the different, I don't, yeah, I'm I don't know sure. how to define. I mean, somehow I'm technically a millennial. You're which, a millennial. Under 40 is a millennial. <laughs> I, I, I I'm, an, I'm an old millennial, but to me, it's strange that I'm a millennial. Right. So, in any regard, younger people, however they're defined, the, the frustration I have sometimes is I almost feel like there's an expectation of my hands out, give me, give me this. And now I don't remember being that way. And that's usually a turnoff for me. And and that's like maybe the fourth or fifth piece of advice I give to the person. And But I, I look at that as being tied directly to passion. It's like, that's not how this works. Like, or, or that's not how it should work. Like, And also experiences, right? Like we are now, of, we're like, getting towards middle age. So it's very common for people our age to have had parents that are immigrants. You do, sure. I did. And so they come from the mindset of working for what you have. Right. And now we are the parents of the millennials. Who, Speak for yourself. Who putting I'm their hanging hands out. out. I mean, I don't have any kids I'm still yet, at the but. kids table. Um, <laughs> all right. So Grammy, you sounds dope AF. I learned a lot about you today, which... It's weird because I know you so well, but I don't know if I knew all of this stuff. Is there? We don't any... talk work, which is one of the be- most yeah, beautiful yeah, thing about our friendship. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy. Like I try not to, right? Like I have a you, you as well, and a lot of the guests who have appeared on this podcast are friends. Like I consider you like you're my friend, right? E? Like it's not just like hey, get me tickets to this, and I'll get you tickets to that, and we'll talk shop. Like we actually don't have that relationship, and we're gonna save how we met for another time, or not publish it in the ether it's um, black box after dark right edition. right exactly but yeah we don't talk shop but i guess what i was gonna where i was gonna go with this conversation is is there any part of you that and i'm i'm sure the short answer is yes but i would love the long answer like is there any part of you that's like i don't want to do this anymore it's wearing me out you said the pa- if the passion goes you know it's not for you but like as great as i know you're into music as great as this job is dope and you know all the stuff i do is dope is there any part of you that's like because uh, there, there were. I've had moments. My favorite thing, you know, this. My favorite sport in the world is basketball, and not just that. Like you know, when I was physically able, I loved and I truly miss playing basketball. Like there's a high I used to get from playing basketball. Now I just get regular high with weed. But you know me. I can sit and watch ten hours of basketball straight. The NBA, the best players in the world, LeBron forever. But there, I've had moments. I've had low moments where I'm like. Oh, this job is making me not like this sport or I'm being too exposed to it. Have you had those and any of them like say, okay, this is where I would pivot to? I think we all experience like a degree of that. Mine, I think have been more tied to specific parts and the evolution of my own personal life when I think about what else is out there for me because I've made so much of my life about my work. And when people say like, oh, it's not work if you love what you do. No, it's still work. But to your point about passion, there are only, there are, well, not only, but there are two things that I am super hyper passionate about. One of them is music. And so I can't imagine a day in my life not doing something 
that involves music. So even though there have been low low moments for me, sure, it's still where I want to be. And it's still That's the thing. Yep. It's still the thing that makes me remember that 13-year-old kid or even the 5-year-old kid who went to her first concert with her or dad. Or even the 25-year-old kid who's like this is a dope ass concert that I'm working, right? Or like, even the 37-year-old woman yeah, who yeah. jumped around after going to the first show in 19 months a couple weeks ago right. and was like re-inspired. I mean, I saw you work an event once. You invited me to the Met. Remember when the Met reopened and you had to work that event? Like, oh, we did MoMA. Yeah, MoMA. Yeah, right. yeah. And and I'm like this sometimes too. I could see it in your eye. I was like, oh, she's in her element. And I could feel it's it. It's a high for me. Yeah. I could I'm an it. adrenaline junkie. I mean, you saw I made you jump out of a plane. Right. So that's one of many things that feeds that addiction, if you will, is like adrenaline. Okay. So I know you're not a big person on social media. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time. But is there places we can find you? Is there a place we can find Grammy U? Is there a place we can find DOS Communications? Pretty Reckless. Is there anything you want to shout out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can find me on mostly Instagram at Rockin' the Free World, which is R K N the Free W R L D. The Pretty Reckless is at the Pretty Reckless. They're at so dope. They're Taylor so dope. Momsen. DOS Communications does not have a website, nor are we public on social media. That's a strategy thing. Like behind the scenes, behind the scenes type stuff. Yeah, we're not the celebrity, so it's it's more just about maintaining that sort of differentiation. Okay. But I do use my social media for things that I love personally and for talking about all the great things that my clients are doing. <laughs> and where do we find Grammy U? Because I think that's dope. And I think anybody that's listening to this who's in college, who's interested in getting music should 1000% look into that. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're in Grammy season now because actually nomination round, voting nomination rounds closed today. I might be mistaken, so we might need to change this, but I think it's just GrammyU.com, but, but we can look that up. And if you do a search for Grammy U, you'll I'm find sure, it. I'm sure the millennials know how to use Google. E, always appreciate the time. Always appreciate the candor. Really appreciate the friendship, because you're right, we don't talk shop, so this was fun. Thanks for having me. The Black Box Podcast is not possible without the team. The show is produced by Gotham Podcast Studios in New York City. Special shout out to Raul Hernandez. Creative director, Alana Rodriguez. Video editor, Paul Aspen. Music by Ye Ali. All photos by Jonathan Gabriel Charles. Designed by Lineage Digital.